This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast. This is a collaboration between the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Duncan Macargo. I'm the director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and also a professor of political science here at the University of Copenhagen. It's my great pleasure today to start us off on what may be a bit of a theme for the the coming podcast. We're going to be talking about Thailand primarily in this session, and there'll be more Thailand-related topics coming up over the next few weeks. So I'm joined uh, today by Petra Desitova, who is a postdoctoral researcher here at, at NIAS. Welcome to the podcast, Petra. Hi, Duncan. Thank you very much for having having me. It's a pleasure. Okay, now I'm in the privileged position of actually having uh, previously supervised and obviously read your PhD thesis, which is on the subject of nation branding in Thailand. So I know a little bit about this, but I suspect quite a lot of people listening won't be terribly clear about what nation branding is. So maybe we can start there. Can you just tell us what actually is nation branding? Yes, that's that's right. You're absolutely right there that a lot of people don't necessarily know what nation branding is. Um, I think when you say the the phrase nation branding, a lot of people can deduct roughly what it means, but most people usually tend to stop at, let's say, tourism or promotion of foreign direct investment, and they think that that's all that nation branding um, is about. However, nation branding is more of a sort of holistic approach to national reputation management that is usually carried or or actually done um, in various different sectors, and it uses techniques of commercial branding and, and marketing. So it's really trying to reimagine the country as a as a product, or let's say a corporation, and try to brand it or market it to the wider wider audience. Right, because I'm familiar, obviously, as somebody who myself has worked a lot on Thailand, I'm familiar with the Amazing Thailand campaigns, which came out of sort of the Visit Thailand years that preceded that. Also, you know, there's there's Malaysia, Truly Asia, and various other catchphrases that other Southeast and East Asian countries have used. So I understand this idea of branding your nation as an attempt to well of course the tour the classic tourism promotion the classic attempts to uh get people interested in trading and interested on some broader level in culture things like food obviously which we probably talk about a bit more um but Petra, we're political scientists. Now, what does this really have to do with politics, this stuff? Because most people think that nation branding is, is about marketing. And we don't care about marketing in political science, do we? Exactly. That's, that's very much right. I mean, there has been a bit of reluctance from political scientists to engage with um, nation branding. And uh, it is often perceived, as you rightly pointed out, as something quite superficial that doesn't really have any substance But when you start scratching the surface, it actually does have a lot of substance and there is a lot more to nation branding than meets meets the eye. There are, I think, two important things in regards to nation branding. First, when we start looking a little bit beyond maybe some of these logos and when we start analysing some of the campaigns and maybe depict some of the slogans used, we could actually look at state-society relations and we could look at some potential tensions there. 
um, as well as some, some deeper issues like questions of political legitimacy. So how governments are trying to present country, you know, what kind of visions do they have for the country? now or even a bit more long term because if we talk about nation branding it is not a, a true reflection of the country right so it is something mm-hmm. more aspirational yep. um, so you never really present your country um, the way it is so it is mm-hmm. more a vision and aspiration what we should sort of aspire to a, as a nation so i think the state society relations and legitimizing uh, legitimation of power are the kind of two important things that we can look from from the disciplines of political science, from the discipline of political science, um, we could actually explore and look at, you know, in relation to nation branding. Right, because as you're saying all this, a number of other, you know, random phrases uh, are popping into my head that are both found in academic literature and, and more widely in sort of the policy and, and public discourse. And I guess what's not always very clear is how do you distinguish nation branding from, from these other terms? So let me, let me have a, I throw three terms at you simultaneously and yet you, let you try to explain to us how you situate nation brand, branding in relation to them. One, of course, is soft power, which everybody in IR talks about, this Joseph Nye thing, like mm-hmm. forget about the hard power, the weaponry, the blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, we're talking about a nation's soft power. So is, is nation branding all about soft power? Another one, of course, is the very classic uh, discussion about propaganda. Isn't this actually just a nice way of talking about propaganda? And a third one, um, probably the most up-to-date, the most recent set of ideas, debates, discourses would be about public diplomacy or latterly digital diplomacy and things like that. So how does how does nation branding connect with soft power propaganda and, and public diplomacy, which we're much more familiar with? Or is it just yeah. another name for all three of them? I mean, yes, this is always a tricky question because mm. of these concepts um, have you know a definition that would be set in stone. So there is when it comes to let's say propaganda Um, nation branding, public diplomacy, or even soft power, there's usually a lot of academic debate about what each of these terms mean, Mm -hmm. where do you draw the lines. So in some ways, um, you could look at it from every possible perspective. And, you know, there are indeed a number of academics who actually argue that uh, nation branding is nothing more than just a pure propaganda, just Mm -hmm. in a sort of nicer way, right? Yeah. However, I do believe that there, especially when it comes to nation branding and propaganda, that there is a value in trying to distinguish the two, especially because propaganda in our minds, or you know, uh, usually when you when you talk about it with let's say members of public, it does have a very serious negative connotations. And nation branding doesn't necessarily have the same. And there is also a difference between nation branding and propaganda in, in a way that. For example, if you defy propaganda, it could have very serious consequences. Mm. If you defy the sort of nation branding message in one way or another, that doesn't necessarily have a very serious consequences. Of course, if nation branding is done in a, um, a non-democratic country or authoritarian regime, it will most likely be accompanied by harsher measures. Mm-hmm. So there will be a level of repression, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to lose your life if you, mm-hmm. if you sort of don't live the brand necessarily. Right. If we talk about the difference between nation branding and um, soft power, you could potentially argue that nation branding um, could be seen as a form of soft power 
but I think there's also a danger of looking at soft power as something that you know happens in the context of international relations, so the relations between countries, and mm-hmm. then kind of forget um, of what is actually happening within the country. So right. with this concept of soft power, I think there is this danger of just looking outwards rather than also or both, you know, outwards and inwards. And I think uh, that's what is usually the problem with nation branding as a concept itself as well, that a lot of people tend to look at it as something that the countries do for the benefit of foreign audiences. And you do not have many studies or many people actually looking at the national level and how the branding and the brand messages are communicated to the nation's own citizens or own people. So I think um, there's an importance not to sort of go down that route and focus just on the external external area of interest. Uh, another another difference perhaps between sort of uh, our sort of understanding of soft power and nation branding could be that nation branding is firmly rooted in techniques in sort of business derived techniques like mm-hmm. marketing. So it is yes. very much inspired by those disciplines, and soft power doesn't necessarily have to be the be that. Uh, and the same is with public diplomacy, which I think in some ways, if, you, if we talk about public diplomacy, it is a lot more narrower concept than when we mm-hmm. discuss nation branding as such. So right. diplomacy is usually something that uh, is a form of communication between governments and publics of other countries. Yes. And again, you do not necessarily look at it as something that can be communicated on the inside or internally as well. Right. I think that, again, is something that we need to be careful about. And in many ways, when you have public diplomacy, efforts they could be quite narrow so you would usually engage with people who are within this public diplomacy mm. so we could cultural institutes or you know specific groups diplomatic circles and and and, and things like that whereas nation branding, nation branding could be a lot broader because it operates through many different sectors so you could have a national brand that is communicated let's say through tourism but it is also communicated at the same time through, let's say, um, a trade promotion body. It is also communicated through um, foreign uh, policy efforts Mm. and also through cultural efforts. And it is communicated both on the inside and outside. Now, obviously, we're here um, having a Nordic Asia podcast and we're primarily interested in Asia. And I know that most of your research has been on Thailand. You started off as what the... North Americans would call a double major studying international relations and Thai and you immersed yourself in the study of Thai in which you're very fluent and you've lived in Thailand and, and gone back and forth there quite a bit. What's the relevance of, of using the case of Thailand here? How does Thailand tie in with all these discussions about nation branding? Well, I think there are, there are two things. So the first thing, Thailand um, as a country has a history of, of you know, being concerned with its image and identity. So that mm. throughout the years there have been many different projects on creating this Thai identity or the idea of Thai-ness, so the act yes. in Thai, what defines you as a Thai person. And that has been communicated both internally and externally. So in that case, or in, in, in this particular sense, then you might be thinking um, about nation running as a con- continuation of these efforts maybe through different means or using Mm -hmm. uh, different techniques. And also when it comes to Thailand, we have seen that since sort of the early 2000s with the rise of tax in Shinawat, there has been a lot of mixing between business and politics. 
So you've got a lot of business influence coming, you know, coming to, to politics with the rise of Taksin, who himself was very apt when it came to, you know, marketing. He actually was even publicly mm. saying that Thailand should be run more like a company and treated more yeah. like a company. And right. he was actually the first prime minister who started looking at nation branding as a potential tool or a strategy mm-hmm. to, to give Thailand an image. And he had numerous different projects. He even actually hired consultants, international consultants, mm-hmm. to, to come and you know, create this brand image for Thailand. And he worked closely with a lot of academics. I mean, at, at the time, you know, academics slash politicians yes. who had marketing backgrounds and right. marketing you know, at the Northwestern University under Philip Kotler, who himself is well known within the marketing world. So that's the time when a lot of this influence, this business influence, especially marketing mm-hmm. mode is coming into Thai politics. And you can't really sort of go back to, to, to what it was before. So I think the government after taxing have been sort of continuing with these things. And obviously it depends on the aptitude of the different governments, how well they have done it. And obviously under the, the military government of Prayut, from 2014 from the coup until the election i mean they're still obviously in power but it's no longer a fully fledged military rule at least not you know Mm -hmm. obviously so there were a bunch of old generals military generals so their approach to nation branding was very much different than let's say that of taxing but i would i would argue that the essence of it was still there Right. So it's very interesting. Governments have come and gone in Thailand pretty regularly over the past 20 years. We've sort of lost count of how many, for those who don't follow Thailand, we've lost count of the number of prime minister's elections. We, we know there's two military coups, a whole series of major street protests, all kinds of turbulence has been going on in Thailand. Yet the nation branding theme is pretty stable through all this instability. Whoever takes power wants to keep branding Thailand. Uh, they may differ slightly about how to do it, but the impulse to engage in nation branding seems to be common whether you're on the the supposedly pro-democratic side of the political spectrum or the sort of hardline military authoritarian side they still want to brand that nation so badly Uh, is that something you can explain part of it could probably be explained that i don't think this would necessarily apply to thailand as the only country within asia but there is you know uh, this very acute sense of having face or maintaining face and it's the idea that this, the surface appearances are very important in, in, in Thailand, but also in other Asian societies. And I think that that has in part to, to do with why nation branding is or has been so successful and why different governments have been very much interested in branding Thailand further. But also another, another thing is Thailand as a country um, has based a lot of its political legitimacy on sort of shared norms and values or sort of identity related mm-hmm. rationales. And that's where, again, nation branding or, or branding as such can be very important because these successive governments have tried to base their legitimacy, again, partly on promoting and trying to push particular shared norms and values so with the with the the latest military government there there has been uh, an aggressive promotion of sort of conservative notions of Thailand and you know in many ways it actually sort of going back in history 
there's been a massive revival of Thai dress or, you know, popularity of, of, of traditional Thai dresses, especially, I think it was in 2018, there was a period of time where there was a massive public craze. Thais were actually wearing traditional Thai dresses and going to these old historical parks, taking selfies, you know, yes. in front of, you know, the, the, the old temples right. and right. things like that. And that was, that was a massive, massive trend and it was very, very popular. And although maybe some were doing it just because of that, because of the popularity, but, you know, there's, there's a deeper meaning in that. And, and this promotion of the traditional Thainese and Thai values, traditional dress, has actually been a staple part of the military government between 2014 and 2019. And it was an important part of their legitimacy narrative. Right, because for those who are not so familiar with the twists and turns of Thai politics, there was this military coup that took place in May 2014. And the last couple of military coups, um, the junta only stayed in power for a year or so. That's what we had in, in 1991 and then 2006-7. Whereas... Um, the military hunter that took power in 2014 stayed in power until last year and arguably in some ways is still in power because the same person is prime minister and some of the key people uh, in the government remain the hunter leaders. So there's been this challenge that the, the regime hasn't been able to invoke uh, conventional ideas of legitimacy based exactly. on popular involvement, representation, democracy. And it seems, seems like what you're saying is they, they resorted to constructing these narratives that you're terming nation branding as a way of justifying to themselves and to the world their continuing hold on, on power for that long period. Exactly. That is exactly the case. I mean, when you look at the period of, of this military rule, there were, I would say, sort of two distinctive parts to these narratives. So you had this one part that was very much focused on these traditional conservative Thai values, trying to bring up a nostalgia for the good old days. Um, mm -hmm. so that was very much represented through these Thai dresses, Thai yes. values, promotion of this very idea of, of Thainess. And then you had the, 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 the different sort of group of campaigns that were trying to present Thailand as this very modern society. Right. And, you know, there was a, a, a very stark contrast between the two, because on the one hand, one was very much about tradition, conservative values, right. and so on. And the other one was about innovation, modernity, digital, you know, age, yep. and those kind of things. So, and, and a lot of these campaigns in, in many respects are actually quite contradictory. But I think... Yes. That's where the beauty of nation branding lies. It's quite suited to this kind of post-ideological um, right. time where you don't necessarily stick to one particular ide ideology, but you could bunch up different things under this seemingly kind yes. of coherent nation brand. And you can quite easily accommodate that when you when you then have this 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 narrative about the country. Oh, yeah, you know, we are moving forward. We are economically modernizing, but we are still. Uh, remaining true to our traditions and to to to, to our you know to true spirit as a Thai nation that is based on you know the nation the religion and the king or the monarchy. Right. 
Yeah, so there's this kind of strange back to the future quality of it. On the one hand, this nostalgia, this looking backwards. On the other hand, making claims about being very, very, you know, in Thai terms, tansamai, very, very modern, exactly. very up to date. And you just, you've made a passing reference to the monarchy there, which is always a, a sensitive subject in discussing things about Thailand. But of course, uh, right in the middle of this hunter period, you have the passing of the late King Bhumipon in, in October. 2016. Do you think in some ways that event um, helped to reinforce this, that for, for certainly a kind of nostalgia for the past, but then a desire to give people a sense of a new vision that the country could continue to move forward, despite the fact that this, this long reign that many times were incredibly emotionally attached to was now over and they had to find position themselves in a new reality? Definitely, I think you you could you you're very right in saying that, and I think from from the beginning of of the military rule, so from the um, May two thousand and fourteen coup, you could really see that I think the military government was trying to put things in place that would prepare the the nation for the end of the old reign, right, the end of uh, King's mm -hmm. reign, and the beginning of a new one, and. Quite interestingly, so the current king, King Vajirangkorn, he um, actually was quite active and involved in a lot of the nation branding activities. Yes. So particularly from 2015, he was trying to build his profile up. And there were two right. national events, which was Bike for Mum event, which was yes. venerate his mother or, you know, the, yes. the queen. And then Bike for Dad event. And then... There were also um, later on, I think another um, biking event was, if I'm not mistaken, in 2018, and that was mm -hmm. of love. Yes. Biking event. So right. you could see some of this, you know, that there were things that were put in place before the end of the, the, the old reign and then had some sort of continuity within the new reign. And, you know, it was very much branded. So there were T-shirts. Yes in royal colors with drawings by the king so he actually right. put the designs yes he was leading these events so it was in a way somehow trying to also refocus the population from the old monarch to the new mm -hmm. monarch as well and right. prepare that transition and, and try to make people you know shift their focus and attention yeah now of course given the fact that Nation branding comes out of a, a marketing context. You'd expect there to be some fairly strong economic elements to this. So how far can you see nation branding reflected in economic initiatives and policies and, and discourses? Of course, right. So if we sort of go back to the beginning of our discussion, when we were discussing what nation branding is, I think uh, really the original idea behind nation branding was to present the country in this sort of global marketplace of nations where, you know, through branding, you would actually help the country become sort of more famous on the world stage and generate more revenue. So the idea behind nation branding, it is very economic in this traditional marketing sense. There were elements of it during the, the military rule in Thailand as well. So you had campaigns like Thailand 4.0, which was uh, quite aggressively promoted both in Thailand and abroad um, from 2016, then uh, again in 2017. Um, then there was some sort of dip in, in, yes. in emotions in around 2018 before it resurfaced again and before people started talking about it again and again. It was very much underpinned by this vision of trying to push Thailand from this middle income trap 
mm-hmm. to, to become, you know, a highly sort of developed country on par with yes. other countries within the region like Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea. Yes. So it was very much this vision of trying to propel Thailand to become this modern economy and you know where where you would have which would be on par with these nations and would be sort of a leader economic leader within the south within southeast asia it would be also fully digitalized society that was mm-hmm. one of the key areas of this thailand 4.0 policies right yes digital era yeah so this is this in many ways those of us who've been studying southeast asia for a while will feel a sense of familiarity because in the 80s and 90s there was all this discussion about NICs, newly industrializing yeah. countries or newly exactly. industrializing economies nies and uh, flying tigers of various kinds and uh, flying geese formations um it's a bit of a, a repackaged version of that stuff about Thailand being in the next wave of industrialization, but no longer is it about industrialization, but it's really about post-industrialization. Yes, that's very true. And Thailand um, was definitely not the only country within the region mm-hmm. that has sort of um, jumped on this idea of 4.0. I mean, originally it was um, Industry 4.0, and yes. thing that uh, originally came from Germany and has right. been sort of repackaged to these different strategies in different countries. I mean, some countries call it Industry 4.0. For example, Japan moved on to mm-hmm. 5.0, right. um, which obviously it's, it's a step further. Indeed, Thailand yes. Had, had this Thailand 4.0 idea. So it's not definitely just Thailand. You can see how Thailand is in this, this respect, or the government is paying attention to what is happening globally as well and trying to sort of jump on the bandwagon and on the trends, the global trends as well. Right. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. I guess one of the main things that comes through from your explanation about nation branding in the Thai context is how far it's not just externally focused, but domestically focused. It's partly a project to bring the population on board with a national project, uh, not simply this power projection that we imagine from models like soft power and so yeah. forth. So I guess the, you know, perhaps the the final question we might discuss in light of all the political upheavals in Thailand recently and the 2019 elections is, are Thais buying it? Do people really believe in this stuff? Have they um, embraced the brand that their nation has been attempting to to sell, not just to the rest of the world, but to them? Now, this is a, a, a very difficult question to answer. Because you would have to, you know, have a um, probably a nationwide survey to be able to mm-hmm. clearly somehow measure how many people buy into these messages. But I think the 2019 election in some way could be a good yardstick, you know, in, in terms of how much these brand messages have actually resonated. And I think you could, the answer to that question could be, yes, it has been successful and no, it hasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, uh, and the reason why I'm saying it is that the 2019 election revealed a massive generation, generational gap between sort of the, the, the older generation of Thais and the younger generation of Thais. And why um, I think many of these brand messages that the, the government has been sort of, the military government has been churning out for, you know, almost five years have resonated more with the older generations and they, they were the ones who ended up voting or supporting the pro-military Palang Pracharat party um, in the 2019 election that is now obviously um, in government so that that has managed to mm-hmm. 
government, although they, I mean, it's important to say that they actually did not win the election. No. So, um, but yes, the, the younger generation actually didn't really seem to buy much into these brand messages. And in fact, um, I did a number of focus groups during my PhD research that was back in 2016 with students, university students in different regions. And what I found out was that a lot of these students didn't actually buy into these messages. I mean, it really depend. It really depended. I mean, the way the students actually related to them um, on which regions they were actually from as well. Because as we know, in Thailand, there is a big regional divide in, in yes. who supports the more conservative um, elites in Thailand and who uh, supports taxing. Um, so the infamous type prime minister and you know obviously the the answers that I got from focus groups to a large extent did um, fit into this geographical divide so the students from the north and northeast tended to be a lot more critical and a lot less accepting of these mm-hmm. messages whereas students in the south the upper south regions that traditionally support the conservative elites they were a lot more open and a lot more sort of accepting right. less critical messages so you have that but a lot of the very sort of conservative messaging sort of fell on deaf ears and I could see as the outcome in the elections because the 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 younger generations actually did not um, you know uh, did not really vote in droves for the pro-military party was the future forward so the the sort of upstart yes that was quite radical for you know Thai politics. Right. They managed to attract their votes rather than these these more conservative, conservatively oriented parties. Right, and this clearly there's lots of food for thought here, and uh, I'm currently co-authoring a book about Future Forward, and that's another conversation. Did Future <laughs> Forward actually create an alternative national imaginary, an attempt to rebrand the nation uh, in a way that was much more attractive to a lot of young voters? So they created a counter-narrative to the, the mainstream exactly. nation branding of the hunter and of the conservative elites. I think that's a very interesting. So nation branding might not be something that national institutions can monopolize, but it could be something that people could deploy subversively uh, and creatively to try to undercut uh, dominant narratives. So there's really a lot of food for thought in this, and I think we'll yes. continue our conversations. But thanks very much, Petra. So you've been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast, co-presented by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Duncan Macargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I've been talking today with Petra Desitova, who's a postdoctoral research fellow here at NIAS, and this has been the first of our conversations about Thailand, but it will not be the last. Thank you. Thank you, Duncan. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.